0: He was the blackest man I've ever seen, and I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. He came at me with unnaturally long arms, looking like talons to, uh, to consume me. His white, crooked teeth looked uh, like the keys on an ebony Steinway, and when he wrapped me up in his arms, I felt... All the pain that I had packed away in a backpack um, being untethered from me as I made the long journey from here to northern Kenya I would have rested in his arms even longer because of how I I felt there but eventually he held me at arm's length holding me by the shoulders he said Patrick you and I are brothers because Our mother, singular, told us to forgive. We are brothers because our mother told us to forgive. By the time John Eck, my long-lost South Sudanese brother, embraced me, I had been traveling with Martha Curry and Kay for 57 straight hours. I felt inhuman we made our way to a place called Marsabit in northern Kenya. It's 160 miles north of the equator. So we had crossed the equator and we're coming back again. It is at the crossroads of Ethiopia to the north, Uganda to the, to the west, South Sudan to the northwest, and uh, Somalia to the east. It is also the home of 15 ancient tribes, Uh, who live in an uneasy peace in that place. The very night that we arrived, 12 people were murdered in cold blood, just just down the hill from where we're meeting, all over the theft of some cows, because cows are like gold in that part of the world. Quite frankly, because of that, and it was all over the news, And because of other things, I didn't think that anyone would attend our Pastors and Wives Conference. Among other things, in order to get to the little conference center atop the hill, you had to ascend a a tower of chocolate mud two feet deep. Only a land cruiser with four-wheel drive could make its way up there and only then after, after sliding sideways this way and that. I knew we were going to be alone there. But when I walked out into the conference hall, there were all 30 pastors and their wives, all dressed in perfectly coordinated outfits so the men and the women were dressed very much the same. Dick Tips would have been in heaven. (laughs) And they all had brightly shined shoes. And this is the part that was truly miraculous. There was not a speck of mud, a speck of dirt, a a speck of dust on their shoes, even though they had walked up that hill. I took it as commensurate with the time that Jesus walked on the water, for surely they had to have walked top that mud. But what was really miraculous is when they started singing. Before we began, the presider of the conference asked them, asked some of the men and women to come up and lead us in singing. No song sheets, no instruments, just their a cappella voices. And it filled the room with such resonance that I was swept away. I tell you that if Isaac Watts and John Wesley had heard them singing they would have written all of their hymns for Swahili instead of English because it is the perfect language for hymnody and singing praise to God at one point I felt like John of the Revelation when I got I, I came up beside one of my new African friends and I said tell me what they're singing and he said We are praising a mighty God. We are praising a mighty God. We are praising a mighty God. Hallelujah! We're claiming a mighty God. We're claiming a mighty God. We're claiming a mighty God. Hallelujah! We're serving a mighty God. We're serving a mighty God. We're serving a mighty God. Hallelujah! And in Swahili, it is penetrating. And I was swept away. And then came some of the presentations. Martha Curry and Kay and I all had presentations to make. The theme of the conference was the importance of pastors loving their wives in the ministry for the health of the church. Now you may say, well, that just makes common sense. But half of these pastors had come out of a radical Islam. And, ha- and all of them had come out of the tribal culture where women had been treated for, their, for generations as, as, as property or as children. And the archbishop called, us, called this conference so that we began to teach about how in the Lord Jesus Christ there's neither male nor female and all are made in the image of God and we cooperate and we adore our wives as Christ adores the church. But I didn't know how it would go. When Martha Curry started speaking, she spoke twice, and I'll have to tell you that I believe that her talks were the most penetrating. And then Kay got up and gave, gave a terse, very honest uh, talk about what it means to be a pastor's wife. And all the women were tuned into her. And then I got her to speak, and I don't know how well it went, I had, uh, but, but you have to speak through a translator even though all 60 people had a facility with English, um, the, um, you, that they're most comfortable with, their, with, their, uh, with the language of Swahili, and so you speak a couple of sentences and your translator is, is saying them over in Swahili and using exactly the same gestures that, that you've been using, <laughs> except better. And I found I could, I had a difficult time getting a rhythm and I thought, am I getting through to anyone? And considering I had seven talks I had to give, I was saying, oh my Lord, you know. And so after our talks, the presider got up and said, now let's have prayer. Now I've grown up in the Episcopal church all my life. And when somebody says, now let's have prayer, everybody kind of gets in their pew and puts their head down like this, you know, and says their private little, you know, Uh, serene prayers that's not the way it works in northern Kenya when the presider said now let's have prayer all 60 people came up to the stage all 60 and the woman who was most ornately dressed most beautifully dressed in gold and black with a black scarf perfectly coiffed hair and shiny red high heels she came up to the edge of the stage she fell directly on her knees and hung her head over the stage. And then all the rest of the 59 did exactly the same thing. And they began to pray in sighs too deep for words. And then they began to repent repent of the injury they had done to each other in their marriages. And the tears hit the stage so that it became slick with water. At one point I looked up and I saw Kay and she was sobbing like Mary Magdalene at the tomb of Jesus. And all of a sudden in the face of this repentance, all of my Western pretensions let go. And I began my own repentance for the injury that I have ever vested on Kay or anyone else. It was about that time that my new new brother, my long-lost brother John, came up with those long arms, and he wrapped them around me. And in his arms, I just shuddered in the knowledge that God was something like his embrace. I also had the thought that it was like the resurrection of my own brother Johnny, that he had come back to life in a cold, black, South Sudanese. (laughs) I could tell you that even though we were sleep deprived, I was raised up to a level I thought almost impossible. These are just Anglicans, just like us, living a mere 8,000 miles away. As I got to know the participants, I noted that John's story was a lot like the other stories. Eight of the men had been, uh, had been uh, uh, Maran. A Maran is a warrior. And regardless of the 15 tribes that you uh, belong to, if you've been chosen to be a Maran, you are sent out into the bush completely naked at age seven. So at age seven, you were sent out to defend yourself and learn to be a warrior and learn to defend your tribe or die. Not to come home. So eight of these guys uh, grew up that way. They're sent out and, in, and folks, it's not like going on a Boy Scout camp out. In northern Kenya, everywhere there are lions and cheetahs and leopards and hippos and hyenas and black mambas ready to devour you. Not to mention that 14 tribes don't want you to exist at all, necessarily, if there's a fight going on. And so these young boys go out. How remarkable that eight of them became Anglican priests. My best buddy uh, that was a Moran was a guy named Peter. And his family had sent him out at age seven. When he hit double figures, he came back to the village, and they asked him if he wanted to go to school. And he said yes, and so he went to the little schoolhouse for the first day, sat in his little desk, you know. And in the room, he saw a creature that scared him more than any of the wild beasts he'd met in the bush. It was a girl. And he said, as soon as I saw her, I rose up and fled back out to the bush for another two years. (laughs) But when he returned, he met another girl, and she was a Christian, and she started praying for him day and night. And before he knew it, he had submitted to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever tell me the prayers of women do not change the world. And you mothers and wives and grandmothers, when your prayers are offered, they go straight up to the throne of grace and it changes all of us hard-headed men of all sizes. And this guy, so swept away in the love of Christ, went back to school. He was older than everyone else. Also, he had these big holes in his ears because that's what they do to Moran. Got a big hole. And he went to school. Then he was able to go to theological training, and he was ordained. A completely transformed life because of the prayers of a girl who loved him and married him and would concede to nothing else but him becoming a follower of Jesus. John, my brother's story, is a little, un, a little different. He was a, a part of the Dinka tribe in South Sudan. He grew up as a Christian and one of the oldest clans of Christians in the world. Uh, everything was fine. He had a family that would have been prosperous by by the measures of where he lived. Uh, But when he's the youngest of six children, when he reached one month's age, his father died. Then tragedy struck. His uncles, his father's brothers, descended on the farm and took all of the family's cows. All of them. Suddenly the family that was somewhat prosperous was now destitute. And before long, they had to move into one of those sprawling refugee camps. And for years, this family of seven lived in a home made of cardboard and corrugated tin. When John got to be the age of understanding, let's say six or seven, he remembers when his mother turned to him and said, Son, you must forgive your uncles. If not, it will eat you from the inside out. You must forgive your uncles. And the reason that John said we were brothers on the first account was that I had, told, I had told the group about the extreme violence in my own childhood home and how my mother gave me the same prescription. Forgive or be eat up from the inside out. When John hit about double figures, the South Sudanese army came sweeping through this large refugee camp and he was conscripted into the military. He became one of the lost boys. And he served in the military for the next 10 years. Another reason he said we were brothers is because we both went from private to captain uh, during our military service. I had kept on telling him, I said, John, your military service and mine bear no resemblance to one another. But he thought they did. And he was convinced we were brothers. And he fought the insurgents coming down from the north for 10 straight years they were pouring over the border in order to capture the resources the rich uh, natural resources of the south when he'd been serving eight and a half years he was a captain his position was overrun and he led a daring escape leading his surviving soldiers and his commander across a swollen river a raging river and through his through his wisdom took them all to safety. On the other side of the river, when they, reached, when they reached Safe Harbor, the commander took his leave and went another direction. The commander would become the president of South Sudan. For John's part, he went back to doing all he knew to do, and that was be a warrior. He went back to fight the insurgents. 18 months later, he took a 7.62 round in his, in his thigh. He crawled into the bush in order to escape being killed and he, and he was lost and his leg with infection grew to the size of a hippo when he was found by his men they carried him to a field hospital and there for four months they worked assiduously to save his leg and his life in the fourth month John when he, John said God spoke to me undeniably God spoke to me and he said two words read isaiah read isaiah well john is like many of us at different chapters in our our lives he was a christian in name only he retorted to god well who is isaiah (laughs) and one of the christians in uh, in the hospital showed him how to find the book of isaiah in a bible he didn't own and john opened it right to the middle of the great book of isaiah and he read these words in rest and refreshment you shall be saved and in quiet and confidence you shall gain your strength but you would not follow me and at that John rose up on that cot he says oh yes i will and when he was released from the hospital he resigned his commission and he went back to South Sudan. He went back to school, went to university, and was ordained an Anglican priest in the Anglican Church of South Sudan. Life was good. He married a woman called Deborah, who was tougher than he than he is, and they had nine children, and he oversees merely 14 churches. <coughs> then tragedy struck again when the insurgents over overran his village and his area they had to leave and go to go to the outskirts of Kampala, Uganda, in order to seek safety. He took his family of ten, uh, actually eleven, and and, um, and his fourteen churches, and they were in another refugee camp in Uganda. He continued to take care of his church, living pretty much hand to mouth. But what he began to see, brought him great, great, great sadness. He and his wife, Deborah, saw this steady stream of these orphaned children from South Sudan. Without even discussing with one another, they adopted nine boys and 13 girls. You do the math. The John X family now was 33 in number. And if you ask John about any of these children, he will tell you their name, their birthday. He'll tell them their distinguishing aspects. He loves them all. Just like the initial nine. He is a remarkable Christian man. But they were living on nothing. And one day he was walking down the streets of Kampala. And this motorcade became racing by him. These black, shiny, uh, uh, Chevy Suburbans and these black Mercedes Benz and as they passed him by they screeched to a halt and the middle Mercedes rolled down the window and then opened the door and called John's name. He went over and it was the president of South Sudan and when he saw John he doubled over and sobs because he never thought he would see John alive again and they hugged each other and he said John please come To the presidential mansion tomorrow because that was where the government was in exile the next day john went to the presidential mansion and the president said tell me what you're doing and john says i'm a pastor and i have 14 churches and i have a billion children Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and the president said i want to help you he said let me give you a van and to help you with your church and john said no he said, well, let me give you a car. He said, no, thank you. Well, let me at least give you a motorbike. No, sir, I will not accept it. And the president was at loose ends trying to figure out, well, what's wrong here, John? And John said, look, I love you, Mr. President, but I do not serve you. I cannot go and represent you. I can only represent my Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I will not accept your gifts. And he said, you know what the scripture says. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other. You'll either serve the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in any other power. You you can't serve God in just business. You can serve God and him alone must be ascendant in your life. And with that, John Eck wheeled around and walked out of the presidential mansion, just like Moses walked out of Pharaoh's court. I sat there in Isiola, uh, Kenya, listening to my brother speak, and I was absolutely in, in awe. And I said, John, how did you do that? He said, Pat, you and I are brothers, we're soldiers. We're people under authority. You know that. You remember from Matthew 8 when Jesus met the centurion? The centurion, upon meeting Christ, says, I know what authority is. I tell a man to go, and he goes. I tell a man to come, and he comes. Jesus says to you and me, he says, come, or he says, go. And we obey because he's our authority. And if we, if we make him our authority, just one word from him will heal us. Just one one word. And he says, I know you believe that, Patrick. And I thought, how wonderful to have a brother that thinks more of you than you think of yourself. As I pondered what he said, I'll leave you with this. I can promise you because I've seen it. If, if we submit to the authority of Christ and him solely, we submit to Christ. He will change our hearts and make us generous again. He will expand our boundaries so that we'll never say there's not enough. There will always be enough. Our homes will be places of peace and sharing. Our pocketbooks will be open. And we will begin to experience a life that we've always dreamed that we would experience. And we'll be able to forgive. Just one word from Christ, we'll be able to forgive. And the cancer that's been eating at us, that unforgiveness that never relents, that unforgiveness that gnaws and chews, it will go go away. And we'll repent. We'll finally repent of all the wasted time, all the wasted days when we've been consumed with self, with our solipsistic, self-centered yearnings. And Christ, who has authority in our life, let us begin completely anew.